Let's, let's begin with prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for this opportunity to sit at your feet and be taught by you. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave his son to show his servants things, things which must shortly take place. And so we understand that the true, not only one who guided the pen of John, but also guides us in our understanding is you. We're so grateful for that. And we ask that we will know tonight when we leave here that we have been taught of God. We ask this of you, mighty and good King Jesus. Amen. Well, let me do a quick reminder of last week. We completed our study of uh, Babylon and we had the marriage supper of the Lamb in the, in the, clo- in the opening portion of Revelation 19. You have re- heaven rejoicing, the worship of God in heaven over the defeat of Babylon. And then immediately after that is the marriage supper of the Lamb in which the saints are brought into the presence of God, dressed in the white robes of the, the righteousness, their righteous acts. We all are, have a welcome before God because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He paid sin's penalty for us. He, we are forgiven. Our debt is forgiven. And that's a legal financial term. Our debt is forgiven based on the fact that Jesus paid our debt on the cross. And as I have stated, that sixth of the seven statements of Jesus that we have recorded in the Gospels is the, is the Greek word tetelestai, paid in full. It was a financial and a legal term. And it meant your debt has been paid, and that was the word that would be written across your your bill in the marketplace, but also in the court system. When you had paid your fines and taken the beatings you were supposed to, or the, your, your time in the salt mines, whatever the penalties were, when your penalties were paid, they would literally write out on your legal bill that you had just finished paying off that word to tell us died, that Jesus cried out from the cross. And everybody at the foot of the cross knew the meaning. It was the standard word in the marketplace, in the court system, they all knew what it mean, meant that the sin debt of the human race, as we look back, we can see that Jesus meant that the sin debt of the human race had been paid off. Freeing his Holy Father to freely forgive us because the debt has been paid. Well, we, however, having been brought in, uh, into a welcome with the Holy God, he then gives us opportunity in our walk following our coming to faith in him to serve him. And he is so, he so loves us. Our father loves us so much. He is eager to pour out extra reward on us. And so, we, when we step into his presence, he's going to remind us of things that we have long forgotten and we didn't think were that important at the time, but as insignificant or as small as we might have thought some act of service or kindness to someone, he's going to remind us of us and he's going to, of it and he's going to just 
pour the rewards on us because that's what parents love to do with their kiddos, right? I get to spoil you. <laughs> and he's going to do that. And so that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then we have the Babylon and the marriage supper segment completed. We then have Jesus coming out at the close of chapter 16. We have the battle of Armageddon. And then we have the fourth and final description of the battle of Armageddon found in the book of Revelation. And the heavens are ripped open and Jesus comes out riding on a white horse. He's, his, he has crowns on his head because he is king of kings. He is the king of every nation. And he comes out, he has a sword coming out of his mouth, meaning his weapon is his word. He merely needs to speak. And we, let me just read this. Verse, uh, tw- chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was faithful and true. And in righteousness, in great, with great skill, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The same expression that the Apostle John uses in his Gospel, John chapter 1. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should slay, he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh. So what is really pictured here is his robe is draped across his thigh as he's seated on this horse. And on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. So here is a different feast. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast... The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so, this, and we covered this last week, this is the last and fourth uh, expression of the Battle of Armageddon that we find here in the book of Revelation. Okay, the immediate question comes, okay, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. What about the dragon? What about that third person of the unholy trinity. We find out 
about him next. Chapter 20, verse 1. Remember, chapter divisions are put in by later editors. They're not inspired. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He has a great chain and he binds him. And he cast him into the bottomless pit. Now remember, the bottomless pit is that place from which the angels that afflict the human race come out of. Uh, in the... Uh, in the, one of those trump in one of the trumpet judgments so here is this bottomless pit and it's in the tigris euphrates valley area he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while. Well, this is where we get the word millennium is from this thousand year period when Lucifer, when Satan, the devil, is in the bottomless pit. Now, I'm going to stop. We're going to pause here for a moment because there are historically in Christianity three views. There is no evidence whatsoever that the early church held any other view than that this thousand years was a literal thousand years. And this thousand years is the introductory phase to the eternal reign of Christ. Christ himself will reign on the earth. And as we're going to see, his saints will reign with him. And this is a thousand year period. That is the introductory phase. And as we have noted before, when we were in Daniel chapter 12, when Jesus comes... There is first a 30-year period, a 30, excuse me, 30-day period, and then a 45-day period. And it says in, Rev in D Daniel 12, blessed are those who make it past that second time. That's past that 75th day following the coming of Christ. Well, what is what are the two of what are what's the 30 days and then the 45 days? And I suggested to you that in the first 30 days is the judgment of Israel. Where every Jew, and this is in the book of Ezekiel, every Jew on the planet is gathered in a supernatural act to a very a known place south of Israel called the wilderness of sin. And Jesus enters into judgment with them and culls the rebels from their midst and throws them into torments. And then he leads the believing Jews into the land. And then in the next 45 days is what we find at the close of Matthew 25, which is the judgment of the nations, where they are every Gentile on the planet is gathered before the Lord Jesus Christ and the judgment of the nations takes place. And those who are rebels, who refuse to submit, and I you think, how in the world could you refuse to submit? For the same reason they don't now. For exactly the same reason they don't now. And what happens? It says in Matthew 25, they're cast into the lake of fire, which was created not for them, but for the devil and his angels. And 
So that's what takes place. In the, and then once you make it past that 75th day following Jesus' second coming, if you are one of those who pass through those judgments, you got it made in the shade. But those are all people ab- able to reproduce. And they will, there will be a population boom. <laughs> and the earth will be re-inhabited by the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so forth, of those who make it through those judgments. And that takes place in the first, in this millennium, this first thousand years, this thousand year introductory period. Okay, that's called the pre-millennial view, what I just expressed to you. There is no indication that that was ever questioned in the early church until uh, I think it was the third or fourth century. I can't give you the dates exactly. Very, very justly, justly famous man by the name of Augustine, St. Augustine. St. Augustine is that city in Florida. St. Augustine is the man. Well, St. Augustine was a legitimately powerful influence in the church. He was raised, his mother was a very godly Christian woman. He lived in North Africa. He was born and raised in North Africa, the city of Hippo, which I believe is in modern day, would be in modern day Tunisia. He had a pagan father, but a godly Christian mother. And as he was growing up and getting, and he was a star pupil, and he became a rhetorician. His, he made a living teaching people how to give speeches. That was a big part of Roman culture, <laughs> was be, being able to stand in front of a crowd and really be skillful in your presence. And so, but he was a very immoral man. And he moved from North Africa to the city of Milan, Italy. And he came under the influence of a man who was the cathedral preacher, pastor by the name of Ambrose. And he got convicted. And he came to faith in Christ while living in Milan, Italy. And he grew in just by huge strides. And after a few years, he decided, I need to return to my home and, have, and express some influence there. And so he returned. And I, I just think this is a marvelous, true story. As he was getting off the boat in, 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 at the port, he steps off the boat. And one of his old girlfriends comes, sees him, and comes charging up to him. Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I, it is I. And she throws her arms around him and he goes, but it is no longer I. (laughs) And he had a very legitimately powerful influence on the church. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. Well, that monastery says the Augustinian monastery system drew most of its inspiration from his writings really had a legitimately powerful influence. John Calvin was an Augustinian canon lawyer. I mean, the, I mean, the influence of Augustine was legitimate. But he's also the origin of what's called amillennialism, which means no millennium. It's, an, it's a negative ah, A. It's no millennium. Why, where in the world? What, this passage is clear. There is going to be a thousand years. He's going to be, Satan's going to be in the pit for a thousand years. 
and when he's finished, he's going to be released, and you keep reading, and it's, there's just no, it's a very, very clear passage. Why did Augustine come up with there's not going to be? Because while he is returned home, he's returned home, he has created legitimately massive influence in the church. There was a Bible school in what is modern-day Lebanon, and they were teaching about prophetic material, and one of the things they said was about the millennium. Oh, it's going to be so super abundant. There's going to be a thousand grapes on every cluster of grapes. And, and they really were emphasizing what we would call the sensual aspects, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, of the blessing of the millennium. That God's blessing is just going to be poured. Well, that hit Augustine wrong. Because Augustine had been saved out of a very licentious background. And when he became a follower of Jesus, he kind of went the other direction to a very... He was afraid of anything having to do with human pleasure. And so when he got hit with that, he just basically threw a fit and said, No, there's not even going to be a millennium. So he threw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead of correcting the teaching, which if it even needed correction, I don't know. You know, folks, I don't know how many grapes are going to be on, a grape, on the grape clusters in the millennium. I really don't. <laughs> and the text doesn't tell us. So it may be those men were overemphasizing that. I don't know. But basically, Augustine had an emotional reaction. Well, he had such legitimate, powerful influence in the church that people just bought that along with everything else he was teaching. And so it became the, I mean, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, all the early Protestant churches or denominations, they were all amillennial too. They got other stuff they're fighting over. <laughs> and it really was the late 1700s, early 1800s, when people started really digging into the prophetic word and this actually began, as far as I understand it, and I'm sure this is a very microscopic view, uh, in, uh, in England and in Plymouth, England, there was a movement begun that was called the Plymouth Brethren. And they basically met in homes, typically. But they began to study the prophetic word. And they're reading Revelation 20 and... Uh, Sure looks to us like there's a thousand years introductory period that's a literal thousand years. What's the problem? And so that's how we're taking the text as it literally is stated. And so we're going back actually to the original position of the church. There's also, and I need to alert you to this, there's also uh, another view that says that there's going to be a, and this was actually the view of some of the pilgrims in the early, the time of the great revivals, the great awakening and so forth. And it, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It starts with a B. Anyways, uh, hmm? no, it's not premillennial. Uh, but that the, that the kingdom will be brought in through the preaching of the gospel. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. And then there's another view that was adopted later by uh, liberal uh, 
Protestants principally who said, oh, we're going to bring in the, in the kingdom of God by our good works. Because we're just such... Huh? Uh, that's an expression of it. Oh, come on. I'll think of it before we're done. It's just not... I've rehearsed this over in my mind so many times I can't believe I can't say it. Uh, I'll, I'll think of it before we're done. Uh, but let me just pick up with verse 4 again. Well, no, let me read verse 3 again. And he, the dragon, no, he, the angel, cast him, the dragon, into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the na nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Why? God has a job for him. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor, or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived, they were raised from the dead, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So who is it that are the principal under the lordship of Christ? Who are the principal ones that through whom he's exercising his authority? It is these tribulation saints who have been raised from the dead who are given this opportunity to be servants of Christ during this time. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again <coughs> until the thousand years were finished. <coughs> this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, meaning the second death is the lake of fire. Over such the, the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. They will have an unrestrained welcome into the presence of God and shall reign with him a thousand years. Yes. The ones who are, right. They're going to be raised for the great white throne judgment. Yes. Those who have been, all the saints of the, of at least the tribulation era, may be the saints of every age. That's what I suspect. But he's emphasizing the the saints of the tribulation era, they will be raised from the dead and they will have a special role during this thousand year period where they are part of Jesus' administration over the earth. And this is an answer to, you know, here are these people that were loyal to Jesus and paid with their lives, so there's going to be an immediate reward for them. Yes, that's correct. The tribulation martyrs who've been raised from the dead <coughs> are, are on the thrones during this <coughs> tribulation era. I mean this millennial era. <coughs> yes. 
Well, I <laughs> would you get me some water? I suspect that we will also be resurrected. I, but it's not mentioned here because it's not part of the immediate effect. <coughs> but there's no mention later on of another res <coughs> resurrection except of the damned. And <coughs> so I believe, I, I think we're going to be coming back. That's right. On well, we're seated with him on uh, white horses, joining him at the time of the second coming. I did. <coughs> well, yes, I would. The this resurrection of the saints of the tribulation era and I believe of every age will occur at the time of the second coming and the, but it's the tribulation saints in particular who have been raised those martyrs who will join Christ in his in the immediate administration political administration of the millennial age but not in this and there will be a special focus on the tribulation saints who have been raised as far as this first thousand years remember the millennium is just a thousand years it's, and then it goes into the eternal reign The first resurrection is the one at the. No, the thousand years isn't over. Correct. I think. Well, the thing is, the text isn't adamant either way. So it's either view is possible. <clears throat> Verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, <coughs> Satan will be released from his prison <coughs> and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is, a, is as the sand of the sea. Now if you go back to the prophet Ezekiel and we do not have time to do this I would encourage you to do this. That's Ezekiel uh, 37, 38, and 39. You, will, you see uh, Gog and Gagog, Magog mentioned and many people identify this as a geographical area uh, print, well, it even says, this is uh, Ezekiel 38, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Gagog, Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him that the core of this place of rebellion will be up in what is modern-day Russia. 
That's why it's the Prince of Rosh. But <clears throat> you've got actually in Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39, you've got two invasions described there of Israel. And one is at the beginning of the tribulation. And that is the invasion by the Antichrist. But they're both called Gog and Magog. And that is, and Jesus uh, destroys them. And then they have to spend several months cleaning up the mess from that battle. And then the second invasion, that's also a Gog and Magog invasion, they won't be, <coughs> Jesus won't speak a word where the blood is coming up to the bridles of the horses. Instead, fire will be poured down from heaven and consume them. Well, fire is a cleanser. There won't be a need to <laughs> cleanse the land. The fire judgment itself will do it. And that's the one we're looking at here. So I'm going to encourage you on your own time to uh, study Revelation, excuse me, Ezekiel. 37, 38, and 39. Uh, and what I'm going to suggest to you is um, that the second battle, the one that is at the end of the millennium, is the one expressed first. And then the first battle is expressed second. Why? Because the last several chapters of Ezekiel are talking about the millennial kingdom where there is a temple in Jerusalem and so forth. And so it makes sense if you understand what lies ahead. Um, but Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Well, what in the world? All After those two judgments, the only Jewish believers survived and only Jewish and only believing Gentiles survived. Who are these people? These are the children, grandchildren. These are the progeny of those who have become rebels. And so Lucifer is actually released from his bottomless pit and he goes through the nations gathering up all these secret, maybe not so secret rebels. And he will bring them to Israel against the city of the great king and that's when fire will be poured down from heaven and destroy them. So actually Lucifer is doing a good job for Jesus in gathering up all these rebels. The same one who incited Antichrist and the false prophet to bring their armies against Jerusalem at, uh, that we find in chapter 19 is the same one inciting these others to come to Jerusalem again for a second shot at this. Let's, we'll get it right the second time here. Again, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's a direct reference back to Ezekiel, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. And fire came down from, he from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. <coughs> 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. What is the books? The books is the record of our works, the record of the reality of who we are. The book of life is the list of all those who have entrusted themselves to Christ's work on the cross, who have been redeemed. So both are opened. Again, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Not good. (laughs) That's not good. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Here's, Here's the reality of your choices. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades were delivered delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the place where judgment is rendered to those who insist on justice rather than mercy. God only has two choices. He can be merciful to you or he can be just to you. He cannot, by his very nature, be unfair or unjust. Our problem is we have this weird idea of how good we are. (laughs) Compared to one of the kindnesses of God to us is that he doesn't let us really see the fullness of what holiness is. Because if it did, it would absolutely wipe us out he lets us see enough to convict us and to puts it put us in the knowledge that we need forgiveness there's no way that my performance can measure up to a to create a welcome before the truly holy god i think i need forgiveness and mercy that's what i need and it's available to anyone for god so loved the world jesus said that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There is no other way of redemption, of salvation, than what Jesus accomplished for. And it's freely available. But you can turn that down and say, no, 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 I want justice. You judge me on my performance. I think I'll be a no, bad choice. Bad choice. All it gets you is a place in the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life, which is the list of those who have cried out to God for forgiveness, was cast into the lake of fire. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, this is going to be a total, we've done the millennium, which we could call the introductory phase of the eternal reign, but now we're stepping into true glory, true blessing, a new heaven and a new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Well, that's, why would that be? Well, think about before the flood. Did you know that before the flood there was no sea? The way the earth was watered was artesian wells flowing up. Why would there be no sea? Because sea, the oceans are regarded as alien to the life of man. Besides that, we're going to need to have this entire globe land because it's going to hold an enormous population. The saints of every age <laughs> are going to be present and we're going to need the space. There was no more sea. Remember those ancient ships that had the eyes on the front of the... The seas, the oceans were always regarded as very dangerous places to go. And uh, the, uh, the, the occupation of being a seaman was regarded as, and authentically was, one of the most dangerous occupations there was. And a sea would go out of port, crossing the Mediterranean or crossing the oceans, and you might, uh, it was a good thing. I wonder if they'll ever come back. There was a lot of things out there that could take them down. And there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. It's going to say there isn't going to be a temple in the New Jerusalem. There isn't going to be a temple. Why? Because we have Jesus. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, in a face-to-face -face relationship with God, and God, lit in the Greek order, and God was the Word. Then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and tented, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here was Jesus of Nazareth, and what is he? Actually, he is God, tented in human flesh. And I, John, and several of my companions got to hang out with him. He tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. And then in chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine... That's the very first miracle he does. And John says, and that was the first manifestation of his glory. That was the first God act that he did that we witnessed. And then we witnessed more and more and more. Every time Jesus spoke God's word, every time he cleansed a leper, healed the sick, raised the dead, he's doing a God act. In Matthew 12 6, we find, I love this, Matthew 12, 6, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his enemies. And uh, let me simply read this passage. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields 
on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They're doing work. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which the high priest gave to them, and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. By the way, I mean, this is really helpful in, at other times. The law of God was written down. But, 97, 98% of the time, there was no conflict between the written law of God and the will of God. But there were occasions where the written word would actually, if you followed the written word, you would be acting unkindly or unmercifully. And you were allowed to set aside the written law in order to fulfill God's command of kindness, of loving your neighbor. And when David and his men went to the tabernacle, he's fleeing from Saul, the high priest, understanding that principle, gave the showbread to David and his men. Because he, he, the high priest, knew, I can set aside the letter of the law in favor of actual service and kindness to people. 98% of the time, there's no conflict. When there's a conflict, we can set the letter aside. And so <clears throat> Jesus' men are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they're plucking grain, the heads of grain off along the road, which were left there, by the way, that was a command from the law of Moses just for this reason. And they're rubbing it in their hands and blowing the chaff off and throwing the raw grain in their mouths. <laughs> and, but it's the Sabbath and the Jewish leadership looks, ah! And Jesus says, don't you know the Bible? Don't you uh, Bible scholars know the Bible? Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? The priests work on the Sabbath in the tabernacle and later the temple. They're given a free pass. Yet I say to you, and this is what we're going for, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. I am the dwelling place of God. <laughs> there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what the, this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I have the authority to set aside the letter of the law. Why? Well, I'm the one who actually gave the law. Moses well this is the one he will be tabernacling in the same way that he was with those apostles for those three three and a half years he will be with us we will be sitting with Jesus enjoying his company now he said wait a minute we're going to be scattered all over the planet well he is God you know <laughs> and he can be in more places than one at a time.
So returning to Revelation 21, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, verse 3, and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Well, what's the moral requirement for thirst? <laughs> there isn't any. You just have to want it. That man crucified beside Jesus, one of the men said, after they were both railing on Jesus and saying, why don't you get yourself down? from the cross if you're who you say you are and while you're at it get us down and then one of them stops and says rebukes the other fellow we deserve what we're getting and he asked Jesus will you remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus said you will be with me this day in paradise the other guy could have asked the same thing but he didn't there's no record of it I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And when you believe in Christ, when you abandon your self-righteousness and you trust in Christ, you've overcome. Because everything about the world system, everything about Satan's deception, everything about our own fallen nature, our own pride says, oh, you don't need that mercy. No. No. And so when we do ask for that mercy, we've overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my servant. No, my son. My son. That is a, that is a word meaning inheritance. We will be heirs. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of that final series of judgments who had who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now think about, when was the last time John was taken by an angel to a mountaintop to look at a, at a woman? It was... Babylon, the whore of Babylon. Now, by contrast, he's taken to a high mountain 
and he's shown the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her, notice Jerusalem is a her. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. <coughs> now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we have a joining together of Israel and the church into one great body and it's expressed in this visual of this city verse 15 and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city its gates and its walls the city is laid out as a square its length is as great as its breadth and he measured the city with a reed 12,000 furlongs its length, breadth, and height are equal. It's about 1,300 in each direction. Width and depth and height, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is 1,380 miles. Now, there's two views on this. Uh, one is that this is a great pyramid. A city in the shape of a pyramid. I think it's much more likely that it's a cube. And I'll tell you why. Because in the ancient tabernacle and in the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies was a cube. Its width, depth, and height were exactly the same. And I'm suggesting to you that this great city, 1,380 miles in each dimension, is a great cube in which the saints of God can dwell and go in and out of this city. It is. It's about the distance from, I think, Dallas to Denver. <laughs> Something like that. It's a, it's a, it's a big, yes, it's a big, a big city. Then he, verse 17, then he measured its wall that goes around the city, 144 cubits, that's the height of the wall, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones, the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. The gates themselves are made out of the same material. And I remember as a reading this... They're going to be round, ball. Well, you know what? Pearls can come in any shape. We happen to market the ones that, you know, 
make nice ornaments. They can, pearls can be in any kind of a shape. Well, these are going to be pearls in the shape of doors. <laughs> the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So God has not restrained himself on the expense. All, of course, all he has to do is speak it into existence. So. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What did it say earlier? Jesus will tabernacle dwell among us. He will be. We're going to be, it says already you said we're going to be priests of God. What does it mean to be a priest? It means you have the right to walk into the very presence of God. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We will have visitation rights with God himself. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And there shall be no night there. So the gates will be open 24 hours a day. Well, what was the purpose of gates in ancient cities? Why did cities have walls and why did they have gates? Well, they had walls and gates to protect themselves from predators. Well, this city is going to have walls and it's going to have these doors, but they're always going to be open. Why? Because there is no threat. There's no night and there's no threat. The nations of those, again, verse 24, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day, and there is no night there. So they will be perpetually open, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. There, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life now this is a kind of tree it's not one tree it is a grove of trees on each side but they are of the same sort in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing or the health of the nations. There won't be a need for healing. There won't be any sickness, but it will be that which sustains the health. And there shall be no more curse. What happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God? A curse. Death came upon debilitation and death came upon the creation itself that's completely removed there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants 
shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Now think about this. In ancient Israel, in the tabernacle and later the temple, where was the presence of God? It was in the Holy of Holies. The sh here is the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Here is the mercy seat. Here is the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And this is the presence of God. And the Shekinah glory was in there. Once a year, only the high priest went in there. And he would do this to bring in an offering. First for himself. This is on the Day of Atonement. First for himself to qualify himself for another year of priestly work. And then for the people. And they would, he had bells on the bottom of his robe so they could hear him moving around. Tinkle, 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 tinkle. And, but they also tied a rope around his ankle. Because if he did anything amiss, struck dead. Now, it never happened. <laughs> because they didn't, they were very careful. But that be the bells were to key so people on the outside could hear, if he's still moving around, we're good. But if they heard a thud, they're not going in after this guy. He's got a rope tied around his ankle that's trailing out under the, under the veil, and they're going to pull him out. They're not going in after him. That's how threatening it was. What happened when Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross? What happened in the temple in Jerusalem? The veil of the temple, which was a two and a half to three inch thick tapestry. Forget this <laughs> fabric. It was, was torn in two from top to bottom and ripped apart. And all those priests who are slay, slaying Passover lambs in the holy place can suddenly see into the holy of holies. And nothing happened. To their shock, they weren't struck dead. Why not? Because Jesus just said, it is finished. He removed the... And it does say later in the book of Acts, a lot of the priests became followers of Jesus. <laughs> they put two and two together. Well, here we are. What verse was I in? Verse, uh, verse 4. They shall see his face and his name shall be written on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. No ne they need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. And this is us. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to... This is the second time he's done this knucklehead play. <laughs> and when I heard and... 
I, and saw I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and, and, and the fellow servant of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. He's not saying I'm one of your brethren. He is an angel. They are a distinct body of created beings. They are not human beings. And that's important for us to understand and not get confused by that language. I'm your fellow servant and the fellow servant of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, how quickly may this happen? He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. That should frighten anyone who has not yet trusted Christ. And he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Sober up. Get your act together. If you haven't trusted Christ yet, you better do it now. And if you have, you better you need to walk an authentic walk. Yes. No, well, I think what it means is his coming is so imminent. You 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 just might not have time to repent. And so you better repent now. And so it really is a direct threat to those who have not yet entrusted themselves to God's mercy. Verse 12, and behold, I am, this is Jesus speaking, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. The, those who have trusted me, my pleasure will be to pour out rewards on you for your authentic walk of obedience i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the first and the last you want to understand what god is like look at me what does jesus say in the gospel of john he who has seen me has seen the father what a huge statement the words that i speak to you are the words that the father gave me to speak to you i am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. What's the first? What, you read John's gospel, chapters 1 through 12, which is the part that is expressly for unbelievers. And what is it? Believe in the Son, believe in the Son. Believe. This is the command. Believe in the Son. That is a command. On, in Acts 17, Paul standing on Mars Hill in, in Athens talking to the committee that approves people's messages in the city because they've had too much turmoil with knuckleheads showing up and saying wild things. And so they have this committee set up and he's speaking to this committee and he says to them, he's explained the gospel and he says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is a command from God. Be command that brings damnation on people 
is disobedience to the command to believe in the Son. Bank robbers who believe in the Son get to go to heaven. <laughs> People who live nice, neat, tidy lives who refuse to believe in the Son go to the lake of fire. Verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers. By the way, the lake of fire is right outside the New Jerusalem. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. Whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things. God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. God shall take away his part from the book of life. From the holy city and for things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. And then the final prayer of the Bible, Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. By the way, I remembered that third version of millennialism. It's called post-millennialism. That is that Jesus will come after the millennium, after we have brought in the millennium by our preaching of the gospel or by our good works. Post-millennialism. Pre-millennialism is what the passage teaches. Amillennialism is what, because of their esteem for Augustine, the church followed into and post-millennialism that is that Jesus will come after we have brought in the millennium and uh, pre-millennialism is clearly what Revelation 20 teaches so any comments or questions well certainly John with the book of Revelation but there is other well, the Lord Jesus in the upper in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, that's the best place to go. Well, in Paul, well, Paul, well, oh, yeah, Ezekiel, that Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. It's, there's, oh, yes, there's lots in it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Ze uh, Zechariah, Ze again, I would encourage you to go read Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. That is the most graphic picture of the Battle of Armageddon you'll find in the Bible. 
No, no, no. And a lot of what you find here in the book of Revelation, you can find already referenced in the Hebrew prophets. Um, and of course, the Apostle Paul had some segments, especially about the rapture, the catching up of the church. Um, but certainly in the, in, let me explain, in the, the Old Testament is organized as law in his, and history, followed by the wisdom literature, followed by the prophets, the larger prophets and then the shorter prophets. The New Testament is organized the same way with the history, the four Gospels plus the book of Acts, followed by the epistles, which we would maybe perhaps call the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And what's the last book of the New Testament is that revela is the prophetic portion. Now, you have some portions of prophecy in the in the epistles and it's certainly with Christ's Olivet Discourse. But it's the same uh, organization to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yes, it is. We, we do know that it is the same fellow. Uh, he was he left when he left uh, Israel. He went up to what is modern day uh, Turkey, uh, the city of Ephesus. And he was the leader of the church at Ephesus for many, many years. By the way, Mary, the mother of Jesus, accompanied him to the city of Ephesus. And if you take the tourist uh, tour of the city of Ephesus, they actually there's a cave there in Ephesus that they claim that Mary resided in that cave. It's, it's not a dirty old place, <laughs> but that that was where Mary and as John remember, John was at the foot of Jesus cross and Jesus committed the care of his mother into the hands of John and he carried out that responsibility. But then he was. <clears throat> they sought to martyr him because he wouldn't worship the emperor. And so they thought, OK, well, here's the death sentence. We will pour boiling oil on him. Well, typically that would kill people, but it didn't, didn't kill John. Now, it burned him bad. And so, okay, now we've got this crippled guy. So they sent him to the island of Patmos off the west coast in the Mediterranean, off the west coast of modern-day Turkey, and it was a prison island. And that was where he was when he received this revelation. And then he did finally leave Patmos. This is from extra church history. And was he returned eventually to the city of Ephesus and a few years later died. But the Gospel of John. Huh? No, no, he, he, re, he was able to return to Ephesus once his sentence was his time there on the uh, penal island was completed. He was restored to Ephesus and he died there. But he wrote his all of his works were at the very end. He was the youngest of the apostles. He's writing the book of Revelation about close to 60 years after the resurrection. It's in the early 90s A.D. Well, Christ w was crucified and rose from the dead in 33. But John, who was the youngest of the apostles, survived the longest. And he wrote his gospel and the three epistles that we have and the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation last, but... Uh, towards the very close of his life. Well, the simplicity of the language is, he uses a very, uh, the Gospel of John, 
is the smallest vocabulary that you will find of all the guy. He writes very simply, very profoundly, but very simply. Now he is writing very simply in the in this book also, but the subject matter is so deep and complex and animated that he's of course is has to represent that clearly. But he's using very plain uh, Greek as he's writing. It's not. Uh, probably the most complex uh, highfalutin Greek, if I can use that term, would be Luke, the author of Luke and Acts. Uh, he had the broadest vocabulary as he wrote. And I think John was doing that deliberately, trying to keep things as plain, simple, readable for all readers, accessible to all readers. Our Lord Jesus, uh, we have spent much time at your feet to be instructed by you regarding these, the, the way the events will unfold that will lead to your coming and what your coming will look like in the great blessing, the kingdom blessing that is promised to us. Lord, we ask that this will find a such a powerful place in our thoughts and our minds and our hearts that it will affect our motivations and the moral choices that we make and the life choices the things that we value now will be affected by this revelation that that day is coming when we will stand before you and the only issue will be what did you do for me what did you do for my glory what did you do in obedience to me what did you do as an act of service to me that will be the only issue lord we are asking that the all of this prophetic literature that we've looked at will have that powerful influence on us to value what you value which will affect our eternal experience. In your name, King Jesus, we pray. Amen.